Psalm 3, it's a psalm of lament, and we'll talk about lament a little bit later, but it was written um, around the time that Dave, King David was fleeing Jerusalem. And if you, maybe you know the story about how his son Absalom, um, maybe you don't, but his son, he had a son Absalom, and Absalom rose up and decided to take control of the throne, kicked David out, and so David's on the run out of the city. And that may sound very hopeless, and you may wonder, okay, what does this mean for me? Uh, but what we'll see in this psalm is that even though it, all of Israel had turned against David, still David trusted in the Lord to bring him salvation. And similarly, his people can trust in the Lord to bring them salvation. So let's look at Psalm 3. I will read the text, and then we'll take a look at it. So Psalm 3, a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Selah. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. Selah. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Selah. Lord, we come to you today looking at Psalm 3. And I thank you for in, that you included this in the Psalms for us and that we get to hear about David's response in this time of trouble and that we get to hear about how you bring salvation for your people. I pray that we would learn what you want us to learn through this psalm and through this sermon today. I pray that you would speak through me and that uh, your spirit would be among us and inside of us and would convict us when needed and, and would enlighten our understanding as well. And I just pray that we would see beautiful and marvelous things in this passage. In your name, amen. Well, in the, in the Disney film Mulan, perhaps the most memorable song is the song Reflection, right? Probably anyone that's seen it remembers this. Who is that girl I see staring straight back at me? When will my reflection show who I am inside? And every little girl, and probably quite a few little boys too, who watched that film, memorized it, took it home, and sang it into their own mirrors, singing to themselves about their angst, about how no one can really understand who I am inside. In the film, Mulan just came from a public mishap, and she had brought immense shame on her family. And when she went home, instead of going to her parents, she avoided them, went out in the garden, went up to their, up to their family temple. And when she gets to the temple, she belts out this lament about how her inner and her outer person, just they don't match up, and how this conflict hurts both herself and her parents. She sings about how she's not good enough to meet society's expectations, and she wonders tragically if this is just how she's doomed to live, if she's doomed to live the rest of her life with this tension. Now, at first glance, this song may seem like it's simply part of just the narrative. It's just there to push the plot along, and I'm sure the writers of the film probably to some degree that's true. However, in this film, with this song, Disney is taking part in a long tradition going back to the Psalms and even before. Historically, societies have allowed their people space to express sorrow and grief, sometimes in very public settings, and they've allowed space for their people to work through this grief and to heal. 
And this is something we call lament. I mentioned this psalm, Psalm 3, is a psalm of lament. And we see lament throughout history. You see it in primeval funeral rites. You see it in contemporary opera. Going back to ancient Egypt, up to contemporary um, Disney, even. And today, we're reading this psalm. We're reading this psalm of lament. And we hear of a figure that's much like Mulan, who is in a hopeless situation, who cannot overcome the obstacles in his life. And like Mulan, he is helpless and he is broken. And you probably guessed it, this figure is King David. And unlike Mulan, he's not just merely ranting. He's not praying to his ancestors to bring him deliverance. Rather, he is bringing his grief and his hopelessness to God, the God of his ancestors, the God who truly can bring salvation. David in this psalm emphasizes desperation and anguish. But far from being hopeless, and despairing, this psalm provides the reader hope. And this, this, this psalm shows us that because salvation belongs to the Lord, we can trust him to deliver us from our enemies. And in this psalm, we're going to see three things. As David prays for salvation, we're going to see that God answers us, God sustains us, and ultimately God saves us. So God answers, God sustains, and God saves. So let's look at verses 1 through 4. We'll, we'll hear how God answers us. If you look at verse 1, you can probably see almost right away just how distressed David is. How many are my foes? Many are rising against me. He's completely surrounded by enemies, and he's crying out to the Lord about this. Now, you may think, hey, David, why are you doing this? Like, God is all-knowing. God knows about your plight. He already knew that your son was going to rise up against you and kick you out of the city. It's so like, what are you doing here? Like, God already knows this. Get to the good stuff. Like, ask him for help. But David comes in the midst of his distress, and he doesn't immediately demand that God fix everything. He doesn't immediately demand that God destroy his enemies. Rather, he takes his time to recount his woes to God, to tell God exactly how he feels, even though God does already know this. He tells God that he's surrounded by enemies, that all of Israel is against him, that they're bad-mouthing him even. They say in verse 2 that there's no salvation for him even in God, that even God can't save David. Now, when we hear in verse 4 that God answered David, and we, he had to have heard David, right? So, I mean, to answer someone, you need to hear them. So if God's going to answer you when you pray, he has to hear you first, right? And so David comes to God, and he tells him his woes. And what we see in verse 3 is that David, ultimately, after he calls to God, he is assured, he receives an answer from God that he will be shielded, that he will receive glory, that even though he has been cast down, he will be lifted up. The answer from God is his promised deliverance for David. And you may think, okay, how did God answer David? Did he speak to him audibly and say, David, I'm going to shield you. I'm going to lift you up. Or maybe it was more internal, a working of the Spirit. And we don't know from the narrative how exactly God answered David or how he spoke to him. But we do know that God answered him and promised him that he would be with him and that he would lift him up again. And remember, this is the same David that committed adultery and murder. This is the same David that has a hugely messed up family. I mean, in, right now, he's dealing with this rebellious son. This is this David. He came to God and decided, I'm going to pour out my heart to God. And what's even more amazing than him doing that is that God 
answered him. Before my wife and I were married, we had some marriage counseling with Hannah's pastor, who also happened to double as her father. And that was fine. I don't know if I'd say you should do that, but um, <laughs> we love her dad. Um, he sh he, in one of the sessions, he showed us this video. And in the video, you see sort of, like the, you can't see the entirety of each person, but there's this couple sitting on a couch. And the woman, she's complaining about these pains in her head, and she just has constant discomfort. And then the camera kind of pans out, and she turns to her husband, and you see there's this nail stuck in her forehead. And the husband is like looking at her this entire time, and he says, well, honey, I think I know what's wrong. You have a, you have a nail in your forehead. And the wife interrupts him and says, it's not about the nail. You never listened to me. And so for the rest of the video, the husband's like, fine, I will, I will listen to you. And the wife goes on and, and just talks about the pain in her head, how she has issues sleeping, how all her sweaters snag. And at the end of it, the husband looks at her and through gritted teeth says, that sounds really hard. And the wife just smiles at him. She was heard, right? He, list he listened to her. And she, s she leans in to kiss him and hits the nail, and their argument starts all over again. What my father-in-law was saying to me, he said, Hannah is sometimes going to want you just to listen to her and not immediately solve the problem. She wants to know that she can find comfort in someone that she loves, that they're hearing her, that they care enough about her to hear and not to immediately say, that, well, this is what you're doing wrong, this is how you should fix it. And in the first few verses, that's kind of where David is at. He's coming to the Lord with this nail in his forehead, and he's not asking God to immediately fix everything for him. And we see that God hears David, that he acknowledges this nail in his forehead, that he, he answers David with assurance that, David, it's okay. I love you. I'm going to protect you. I understand what you're going through right now. And just like David, God hears his people. He hears us. And he wants us to call on him, and he promises that he will answer us when we do call. And the thing is, he's already answered us in some ways. I mean, he's given us his word, right? This is his direct revelation to us. It tells us how he came into this world and how he pursued us and how he loves us and what his ultimate goal is for us, to be reunited with him in perfect communion, that he is going to come again and bring his kingdom down to us. And if you're a Christian, he's given you his spirit within you. The spirit indwells you, convicts you of sin, and it also brings you assurance that you are loved by your Father. And I think even though we have the Word and we have the Spirit, too often we approach prayer with this guilty attitude. We are so aware of our sin that we commit daily. And that's a good thing, to be aware of your sin. But we're so aware of it, we're so aware of how our life is falling apart, how we're failing, and we ignore the good news of the gospel. The good news that God loves you, and he chose you, and he wants you. And instead, we wallow in our guilt and our bad life situation, and often we approach, often I approach prayer with this attitude of, of God, I'm, I'm sorry for my sin. I'm going to do better. 
I'll do better. And when I have my sin more under control, then I'll approach you. Then uh, I'll come to you as your child, and I'll commune with you. I'll talk with you. But until then, I'm, I'm not really worthy to approach you, M- maybe to confess my sin, but uh, nothing else. But that's not how God operates. That is not how he operates. Christian, he longs to know you. He longs to have you approach and tell him your troubles, just as King David did. He longs to know how your enemies surround you and how your life is falling apart, even sometimes when it's falling apart because of your own sin. He wants to know how you struggle with sin. He wants to know how you struggle with that particular sin that just no matter what you do, it continues to come back and it just seems to control you. Because the thing is, Jesus has already taken away your sin and he's given you his righteousness. And so when you come to the Lord, God only sees you, sinful and messed up maybe and struggling, but he sees only Christ. So approach him boldly, like King David. Tell him your struggles, your problems, your hurts, and he will hear you and he will answer you with peace and assurance and a clear conscience. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian or you're still trying to figure out this, this whole Christianity thing, you're not sure um, if God does hear you, if, if he even is, exists, I encourage you to call upon him, and he won't turn you away. God is a God who takes doubt and turns it into faith. And no matter where you are coming from, no matter what you've done, what people say about you, God is not going to turn you away. He will work inside of you, and he will, if you come to him, he will call you his child. He will call you pure and perfect. So in the first few verses, we've seen how God hears and answers his children, and he longs for us to come to him. Now we're going to look at verses 5 and 6, the next two verses in this passage, and we're going to see how God sustains us. So David switches gears here, and he's no longer talking in the past tense, and he's no longer talking directly to God. Rather, he, he kind of switches things up and says, well, now I laid down and I slept, and then I woke up again. I don't know about you, I don't know how you'd sleep in David's situation. You lost your kingdom, your son is turned against you, the entire country is bad-mouthing you. In his commentary on Psalm 3, John Calvin says, quote, uh, David slept, quote, as if he had been beyond the reach of all danger. He had doubtless been tossed amidst the merciless waves of anxiety, but however much he was disquieted, he reposed in God. Despite his circumstances, David sleeps peacefully. He goes to the Lord and tells him his woes and receives an answer of the Lord's assurance, and then he turns and puts that into action. No matter how many thousands of enemies were, tur- were around about David, no matter, no matter how much the nation was against him, he spoke to God, received his answer, and then acted in faith. And surely the Lord of hosts, the Lord who had cared for Israel in the past, surely he would care for his anointed son now. There were uh, several summers ago, my wife and I went camping, and... Hannah had never been camping before. Um, she's been camping since, which is miraculous. But uh, we, it, was, it was great. It was so fun until we went to bed. And as many of you know, probably you've been camping. I don't know. It's a universal law that it just has to rain when you're camping. And 
rain it did. Rain it did. And this, this was more than rain. It was just a massive thunderstorm. And I, I'm not kidding when I say it was bigger than any other storm I've, I've ever witnessed before. And maybe it was because I was outside the whole time. <laughs> but it went on for hours. And it felt like we were at the epicenter of the storm. Not like the eye of the storm where everything's calm. No, but this is like the maelstrom in the middle where you were just... You could hear the thunder start on one side of the sky and just echo and ricochet across. And I remember lying in our tent. We were with some friends, and we were both in tents. And I remember thinking, okay, we're in a tent. This campsite is full of these huge trees just spread around. And the storm is going to knock a tree down. I just know it. It's going it's gonna, to it's gonna fall right on top of us. And I just remember I could not sleep at all. I, w- I was not feeling the zen that King David was feeling at this, at this point. And I, I wasn't lying there safe and sound, sleeping in the, the knowledge that God would sustain me. Um, I, I was pretty sure that the next day the rescue crews were going to be scraping me off the bottom of a tree with a spatula, but um, <laughs> David does not do that. And David shows that Christians can have complete confidence, even to the point of sleeping amidst, amidst their biggest problems, amidst the thunderstorms of life or huge crowds of enemies gathered around you. It kind of reminds me, the, the way that David just sleeps so peacefully here, it reminds me of that passage in, in Matthew, uh, or excuse me, Mark, where Jesus is asleep on the, on the boat in the Sea of Galilee, remember, in the storm. And his disciples wake him up. They're like, Jesus, well, like, what are you doing? It, the, do you hear this storm? And he's like, why are you afraid? Have you still no faith? Why are we afraid? Have we still no faith? God has answered us with his word and his spirit, and yet we still lose sleep. We still doubt that he is going to truly take care of us, even when we've seen everything he's done to take care of us. Perhaps you worry about that kid who rebels or has walked away from the faith, and you keep thinking about what you might have done wrong, about what now you could do to fix them. Or maybe you struggle with your own sin, with that one sin, and no matter what you do, it continues to rear its ugly head. And all you do constantly is worry about what you can do to make it go away, about how you can get right with God and make him love you again. You may not say it in those words, but that, that's kind of what you're doing. Or maybe like David, you've lost your kingdom. You've just been let go or divorced, retired or graduated, and that, that job or that marriage or that degree program that so defined your life, so defined you, suddenly it's gone, and you have to figure out now, what am I doing going forward? What is my life? Who am I? And you have to figure out where to go, what to tell everyone when they ask you about it, who you really are. Matthew 6 tells us we don't have to worry about what we eat or what we wear. It reminds us that, you know, God cares for the lilies and the birds, and if he cares for them, how much more is he going to care for his own child? And then verse 34, it says, Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Christian, you can have complete confidence that God will provide for you. I mean, he knows your circumstances. Remember the beginning? He's all-knowing. Why, why is David doing this? Why is he telling him his problems? Well, yeah, God is all-knowing. He knows exactly where you are and where you're going to go, and he knows your needs more than you could ever know them yourself. Remember, this is the same God who led his people out of Egypt and through the wilderness and protected them. 
This is the same God, spoiler alert, who ultimately protects David and leads him back into Jerusalem and to his throne. And this is the same God that came to earth when we broke covenant with him, and he came and lived perfectly and saved us through his death. And so if you are his child, why would he not want to take care of you? Now, you might be saying, well, Benjamin, that sounds great in theory, right? I can listen to Matthew 6 tell me all about not to worry about what to eat and what to wear and what to drink, and that's fine. But it's hard to do in in practice, and yeah, it is. I think, though, that one thing that we neglect too often is something that David shows us in this passage. And he shows us that we need to be in constant prayer. I think we overlook the value of prayer. If we look back at this, you know, David, he's kicked off his throne. He's kicked out by his son. All of the country, think about this, the entire nation is bad-mouthing him. I mean, you think about being bad-mouthed by one or two people. Imagine the entire country is talking ill about you. And what does he do? He goes to the Lord and he prays. His first act, he's kicked out of the city. He's on the run in the wilderness. And what does he do? He prays. He doesn't start planning his political comeback or trying to figure out, okay, what resources do we have? What can we do to get back to Jerusalem? No, he prays. And he goes to God first, and I think we should too. So prayer, you know, we think, okay, Again, God, does, God already knows what we're going through. Why do we have to talk to him? Or how are we going to, are we going to change God's mind or anything? You know, and we often think, what is the purpose of this? Maybe I'll pray when I really, really need something. But otherwise, no. I know I do that too often. Well, prayer, I mean, the physical act, just to start with, the physical act of talking out a problem can often put things in perspective for you, can often grant you clarity. You know, I know I talk to my wife all the time and, and, Sometimes I say, can I ask you something? And really, it's more, I just need to tell you something. I need, to, I need to talk through something before she can really give me any feedback. I'm like, actually, I think I know what I'm doing now. And so prayer can offer that for us just as a purely uh, the physical act. It can also help emotional healing to kind of walk through your problems, to tell someone, to tell God, this is how I'm feeling right now. I don't like this. And it can help us to work through negative emotions. But though that was all important, and I think God knew what he was doing when he designed prayer, okay, to provide some of those physical, those physical things, more than just mere catharsis, God tells us that we can come to him boldly. And we can come to him boldly so that in prayer we can receive grace and mercy in times of need. God promises to provide us special grace and mercy in times of need. And Christians, he will provide rest for your soul. He will provide assurance when you call on him. So don't neglect prayer. It may feel like you're not doing anything, that you're not acting, but don't neglect it because that, is, that should be our first response, to come to God and tell him, this is what I'm feeling. Lord, please help me. And ultimately, you can see in this passage that after he prays, David is empowered to go out and act by faith. He comes to God and tells him his problems, and then he turns around and he sleeps. It doesn't say that he stayed up all night and worried. It says he slept. So he received this answer from God. He prayed, and he received this grace so that he was enabled to live his life now by faith in the God who saves. 
So we've seen how God answers us, and we've seen how God can sustain us. So now let's look at the last two verses as we wrap up. The last two verses, verses 7 and 8. And we'll hear how God saves us. Now, once more, David addresses God directly. He started with God, came back and said, I sleep and I rise up, and now he's back and talking directly to God. And he asks God to do something. Finally, this is the first time in the passage that he actually asks God to do anything for him. And he, sa- he asks God to arise and save him. Now, it's interesting. This actually, this mirrors verse, uh, I believe, 1. Yeah, verse 1, where he's, David says his enemies are rising up against him. And now he goes to God and asks God to arise up and save him. And what this is kind of showing is that what David's enemies have done against him It's not David who is going to come and counteract that. Rather, it's God who is going to come and push back against the enemies. What the enemies have done, God is going to come and reverse for David. And David tells us exactly what God is going to do to his enemies. He uses these beautiful metaphors of striking someone's cheek and breaking their teeth. Now, in the original context, the original audience would have understood immediately striking the cheek was a demeaning act. It was was basically just... Uh, well, we, and we even know today, a slap in the face, right? What is that? It's kind of connotes shame. You're slapping someone in the, in the cheek, you just you hold them in absolute contempt. And then breaking their teeth, this was understood to render someone powerless and defenseless. And I mean, if you think about it, in an age before uh, dentistry, right? Losing your teeth, that's going to set you back quite a bit in life. And so God is going to come down and he's going to bring dishonor and destruction to David's enemies. And then David concludes by ascribing salvation to God. He doesn't depend on his own cunning or might or the might of his army or his, the people that are still following him or his own um, knowledge or wisdom when it comes to politics or, or military prowess. No, he ascribes all might and all strength to God because God is the only one who can bring salvation And this contrasts with David's enemies in verse 2, if we look back at verse 2, because they're saying that even God can't save David. But David is now saying that, no, no, only God can save me. That no matter what befalls David and, and befalls God's people, only he will bring them salvation. And he will bless his people as well. I was trying to think of an illustration for this, this point. Um, I'll bring you behind the veil. In seminary, they tell you that you should probably have an illustration for every point in a, in a sermon. Um, it'd be, it, just, it just helped. We're, we're people, we're story people, right? We tell stories, we hear stories, and, and often, there's some of us probably who, you know, you tell me the facts, you show me a spreadsheet, and I'm like, okay, I'm convinced. But most of us are, need a little more soul put into it, right? And... So I thought, okay, this, a perfect illustration for this section would be to look up a character in literature or TV or something who absolutely messes up and fails. And then throughout their story, they are trying to achieve salvation on their own and kind of atone for their past and, and show that they're, they're, they're good now. And then I was thinking, okay, I'll contrast that with, with the, this passage, you know. David doesn't do that. Um, the problem is that I found way too many characters like that. Um, and I, I, I was like, wow, there's, there's so many. You know, TV and literature are full of these kinds of characters. 
And it's almost like it was written into who we are to seek out redemption. And that comes out in the things we do, the stories we tell. Almost like we're made in a certain way or a certain image to reflect a greater story. A story that speaks of ultimate redemption, redemption that comes from beyond us. And I think we all want redemption, right? We all want to move past our mistakes, to say, no, I'm better than that. That doesn't define me. We try to save ourselves, or we try to find someone who does, right? Whether that's a personal, someone in your personal life, or maybe someone on the political stage, we think, okay, this person is going to save me. They're going to redeem me. Or maybe you think you can do it. I think often, probably all of us think that at some point. And if we didn't want to try to save ourselves or find someone to save us, why would we find this so much in fiction? It's, it, I think we're trying to live vicariously. And why else do we root for our favorite characters? When you watch that TV show where that, where that scumbag all of a sudden starts to redeem themselves and at the, by the end of the show, they're not the enemy anymore. Why do we root for that? Why do we, why do we cheer for them? I think it's because we want to believe that we can save ourselves. And I have good news for you. You can be saved. You can be redeemed from yourself and from your mistakes and your sin, from, from your trauma and the, and the way, things that people have done against you. You don't have to be defined by that, and you can be rescued. The thing is, though, it's nothing that you can do yourself. You cannot pull yourself up by the bootstraps and, and redeem yourself. Psalm 3 shows us that yeah, you can be redeemed and saved. I mean, we look at David. He came to God alone in the first few verses. He alone, surrounded by enemies, kicked out of the, of the kingdom, suffering from his own sinful mistakes. And so, in response, God affirmed him and said, David, I love you. I will shield you. I will protect you. I want you as my son. And in response, David trusted, and he acted by faith that what God had said he would do. He believed in God's sustaining power. And then in turn, just like God had promised, he turned and he said, yes, you are protected. I will rescue you from your enemies. I will destroy them and slap them in the face and break their teeth. So we see David coming to the Lord, David and God responding. David living by faith in that response and God honoring his word. And this is the gospel This is the good news that Jesus gives us. This is the same gospel that we all experience. God saves us despite our sin and our helplessness, despite the things we have done, despite our shame. And we need to hear this today. We need to keep hearing it. Whether you are, maybe you're not a Christian, you need to hear it. And maybe you are a Christian, though. You need to hear the gospel, too. Because like our favorite characters in television or literature, there is someone who needs a redemption arc. Humanity. Us. You. Me. Let me tell you a brief story about humanity. Humanity is invited into a relationship with its creator. And we were given the opportunity to live in perfect communion with our creator. But we looked on lesser things and decided, no, I'm going to throw away what God has given us. And I'm going to try to be my own ruler, to be my own savior. 
but the Creator pursued us. He worked to bring us back into communion with Him and to bring us into relationship. He gave us the law so we would know exactly how we could live to be like Him. And He gave us His word so that we might know how to live like him and how he came into the world to save us. And he came into the world to save us. That's part of his, the story of him chasing us. He came into the world, even though we continue to turn from him, even though we continue to, to, to say, no, I want to, cha- I, want, I want to chase what I want. I want to try to save myself. And he chased after us and came into the world and lived among us. And he suffered He died on our behalf and took our sin upon him. And think about that. The God of the universe, the one who created everything, deciding, no, I'm going to go into that world and I'm going to become like them. And I'm going to suffer the absolute worst thing, dying, death. Because death was not part of of the world when it was created. That was something that humans did and brought upon themselves. And God said, you know what? I'm going to do it. You brought it in here, I'll do it. But the good news is that he, he rose to life again on his own power, and he defeated our worst enemy, sin. And he still offers that salvation freely to all of us. And even though the story continues, we continue to turn away from that. We continue to say, nah, it's not what I want. Even us Christians, we may, have, we may have accepted that, but we still in our daily lives say, I'm st- I know what you said, Lord, but I'm still going to try to do it myself. Christians, you need to hear this today. Salvation isn't just the thing that we do once and then don't have to think about it again. No, God saves you, but you still need to hear the truth of his saving power. You still need to hear it because so often we get settled in our own ways, our idols. We chase after them and we think, no, I can do this myself. I don't need to tell God about my problems. I, I can save myself. And to, like I said earlier, too often we approach prayer that way and, we, and, it, and it impacts us that way, that we don't even want to talk to the Lord because we're so guilty with what we've done. You need to hear the gospel that God has pursued you. And you need to internalize that and tell yourself that every single day, that God has pursued me, and God wants me, and God loves me, and God sees Christ when he sees me, and he doesn't see my sin. And though I do sin, and though I continue to turn away from him, he still loves me as his child. And if you're not a Christian, you also need this. God wants you to come to him, and God will make you his child. And it doesn't matter what people say about you or what you've done. Like I said, it doesn't matter the mistakes you've made. It doesn't matter about what has been done against you how guilty you feel, or how worthless you feel. God wants you to come to him and to tell him your problems, and he will be faithful to give you blessing and peace and to work in your life. So just as David came to God claiming his salvation, so you should come and claim his salvation. God will answer you when when you call on him. God will sustain you. And ultimately, he will save you. He will save you from your enemies, whether those be earthly or spiritual, or maybe that those are internal enemies, because he has already saved us from the ultimate enemy, sin. 
because salvation belongs to the Lord our God, we can trust him to deliver us from all of our enemies. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we praise you for chasing after us, for coming into this world that you created. And though we constantly turn away from you, and though we constantly slap you in the face, you come to us and tell us, no, I will be your shield, I will give you glory, and I will lift your head. And I pray that these truths would sink deep into us and that we would know deeply that we are valued and loved by you. And even though we struggle in this world with, with, with sin, and even though we're sinned against, that doesn't have to define us because our ultimate definition is from you, Lord, that we are your children and you love us. And I pray that we would go out from here resting in that love and, and sharing that good news with others. Please, Lord, work in us. Thank you, Lord, for your word, and thank you for your church. In your name, amen.